Welcome to Discover Indie Film. I'm your host, Jeff Howard, and this is a really fun podcast for me because I am on Zoom with Vitoria Vasconcelos. I tried. Uh, she's in Brazil. Hey, Vitoria. Hey, Jeff. Thanks for having me and great job on the pronunciation. That was great. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Vitoria clearly helped me before we start recording with, with the pronunciation. But uh, she is down in Brazil. I'm up in Los Angeles, so we are on Zoom. So I apologize from the front. If you think the sound quality isn't perfect, you know, modern era. You got to use Zoom nowadays. So Vitoria is here because her film, Pate Matos, is that close? It was at the Sherman Oaks Film Festival last year in 2021. It was in the art house experimental category for short film. And damn, that film is good. It is so good. And and we had a great screening in the theater. I believe you were in like a great block of films. And it was uh, a full theater of people, I think. And like great Q&A. Everyone really appreciated your work. And I'll add, Pate Mathos is in the Discovery Indie Film TV series. This podcast got me talking to so many filmmakers and I found out that the features always ended up on streaming, streaming platforms and the shorts honestly kind of disappeared into the oceans of YouTube and Vimeo. Even like there's great things like Amaletto that like every once in a while highlight a short on YouTube. So I talked to a bunch of the people who done the podcast with shorts and I was like, should we put all the shorts together and make a TV series? And they said yes and it ended up on Amazon Prime. So go to Prime Video, hopefully on a big ass TV because you should not watch beautiful films on a phone. I mean, yes, turn, turn all your lights off, turn the lights off, turn off the phone or at least put it face down and like uh, go to the Prime Video app on a smart TV, type in Discover Indie Film and Victoria's film is actually in season seven. It's in episode two because I finally have the lineup. Oh, nice. In fact, it's all uploaded. Yeah. And, uh, Oh, it's uploaded now? I didn't know. Oh, that's so exciting. Well, it's okay. uploaded and waiting for Amazon's approval. But uh, oh, I see. Okay. They, they approve it for technical purposes. And by season seven, I think we've got the tech stuff down. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Used to be so many hurdles, but now we're good. Yeah, so so that comes out January 15th. I think this podcast will come out a couple weeks after that, probably in uh, February. So okay. that's the introduction. I think that's the introduction. I don't know if we have to add anything else. And I'm just really eager because besides being a uh, a citizen of the world, I mean, you're you're from Brazil. I know you went to USC. I know the film uh, started at USC, at least, or you did it with collaborators from there. I don't know if it was an actual student project. It wasn't. It wasn't. I, I, I remember correctly that you you did it yeah. after school on, on for oh. your for yourself. Well, it, it was it happened while I was at USC. I was a junior. Um, and but it wasn't an official school project but you are right when you say that it kind of started at USC because everything sort of did film wise for me and I shot that movie um like on, almost on campus it wasn't officially on campus but a couple of blocks away almost all of our locations save for two for the soccer field location and the warehouse those two were kind of in different parts of LA but everything else was like my dorm my um not dorm room it was it was an apartment by the dorms but anyways like everything happened in the USC area with um a crew a cast and crew 
Um, the cast is com- entirely from USC, and the crew is like 99.9% um, of USC people or students from other schools. So although it's not an official film for the school, it is, it, it, it's a movie that is very much like a product of our um, USC connection. For sure. And, and, but it's, it's very cool that, that your creativity could not be limited, you know, in my opinion, someone who's going to film school or, uh, you know, and, and is so creative that they're just like, you know, even in my spare time, I'm going to do more work. I think that's very cool. And, and I call you a citizen of the world because, hey, we're on Zoom now. And before we started recording, you showed me the wall and like there's a Yale banner because you did a summer program there. So, I mean, you you have uh, you yes. are, are a global citizen. I think that's fair to say. I, I went to the U.S. for the first time on an exchange program when I was 12 and then again at 14. And then at 15, I was kind of living in the U.S. as a foreign student. And I finished high school there, eventually went to USC. So I, I spent time in Boston, Maine, and then California. Then I moved to Australia for a semester and then back to USC. And then during quarantine, I spent some months in Mexico City and Chile, but very Chile was kind of the shortest. Um, I didn't really get to explore Chile much, but I, I think it's fair to say that I, I have been in, in a couple of different places at this point. Excellent. Yeah. You just got to, uh, you got to, as a filmmaker, you got to throw in uh, a year or two in Paris or something, but yeah, I really, I'm really hoping to add, um, Paris or Prague or, or Berlin to my, um, the places I've lived, um, list. I hope that it happens soon. I'm trying to make plans. I've heard this from more more than one person after seeing my films that I should spend some time in Europe. And I'd love to. I'd love to spend time anywhere. So (laughs) it's funny. You're you're making me think I should have like, obviously, like scheduling kills this, but but it would be so fun to have like an international Zoom chat of all the people who have a film in Discover Indie Film who live outside the U.S. Because it's like there's someone in Prague. Like I bet this woman who made a beautiful dance film and she lives in Prague. She'd be like, "Oh, there's a filmmaker who wants to visit Prague. Heck, I got a guest room." You know what I mean? Like, yeah, let's do, let's start this filmmaker exchange program. Let's do that. People can come to Brazil. I I'm from Recife. That's in the northeast of Brazil. There are so many beautiful movies made here, um, and people should come visit and learn about our films. Just like I want to visit different places and learn about their films. So let's make For that sure. happen. All right. Well, I always start the podcast, although we're well into it, but I ask about, you know, personal history and, and, and especially your creative history. So you shared how much you traveled around during your schooling and stuff. Were you always a creative kid? Like even growing up in Brazil, were you, were you a a writer or did you get, start playing with cameras early? Um, not with cameras, I guess, but I, I mean, I think that I was an actor before I was a person. I was in drama school and drama clubs like all my life and I knew I wanted to do it, but it's as it often happens with like Latin American families and, and I'm sure other families, um, being an actor is not really considered, um, like a good career path. I come from a family of doctors and, um, people like, just uh, mostly doctors really, but there's, my friends are, are lawyers or doctors or engineers or, you know, kind of serious, quote unquote, serious professions. So it was difficult for my, my family to see that it was a career path. And that's kind of what made me study abroad because 
the the rule in my family has always been, you know, fine, you can be whatever you want to be, but you really have to do your best to educate yourself to to be, you know, at the top of your game. So my family always valued valued education a lot. So I started wanting to study abroad and every school that I, that I have been to, I have been a member of the theater troupe or whatever, and have always loved films and did a lot of writing. Um, I edited, I started editing kind of soon too, cause that was the one thing that was that, that I could afford sort of, I didn't know much about cameras or anything, but I, but I liked editing. So all my projects in school, I, I would turn them into like a video project instead of um, a presentation. Um, yeah, but then when I went to USC, USC has this reputation, right, for, for being this big time film school. And I started there as a journalism and acting major because the journalism was kind of like a compromise with my parents because I liked writing. Um, but it, arriving at USC, that's when I realized that film is more than a passion and a hobby. Like there's people that get money and make a living out of film and not just famous people, like their credits are so long after every film, you can sit there for like 20 minutes sometimes. And there are so many names and I'm looking at these names and I'm like, you know, all these people, they are, that's their job. They do this. They make movies and then they get money and then they eat and pay rent and sleep. And, you know, it is possible that I could do that. Like it's, I'm a person, you know, I qualify. So, so, um, at USC, I kind of realized that it could be more than a passion. And then with acting, it really, everything kind of like, um, connected because I knew I wanted to be an actor, but I really had no patience to kind of wait and have my career, especially the beginning of my career, be controlled by other people. Cause that's what kind of happens when you're an actor, right? You get cast in roles and that's kind of arbitrary and you do, you don't play roles that necessarily challenge you and make you a better actor. And that bothers me so much, this idea of like staying still and being the same actor that I was last year. So I started writing characters in short films where, you know, I, I would write a character for myself that I thought was really difficult to play, something that I thought I was really bad at or that I wanted to, you know, develop um, and, and then when I started writing, I was, uh, I, I would just direct my own self. And when you direct and write, you might as well just produce. And then I, I just became well-versed in like the independent, no money at all filmmaking life. And then when I went to film school, it kind of all made sense to me like that. I, I fell in love with, with being in front of the camera first and then behind the camera, later but everything kind of married like it felt like I was finally giving a hundred percent of myself to one thing instead of just like giving a little bit to oh journalism and then a little bit to writing or a little bit to film when I did both of them it just it just felt like it was right so that's kind of how I got to be a film student at USC and I also studied acting at USC but then I later um dropped out of the acting program and studied acting outside of USC for two years in a conservatory in LA that I just finished um, this year. Wow. Fascinating. So, I mean, that whole story is fascinating. I'm just curious. So you were making your own indie shorts, essentially, even at the, at the high school age, like before, before university or before university, I never made anything that I would call a short film. It was just, um, I would be the person taking photos and making videos. And I have a lot of like, I'm the author of all of our family, you know, videos and I would edit everything. I'd be really into that. Like my sister's 
15th birthday party, which in Brazil is a big deal. In Latin America is a big deal when a girl turns 15. It's like a whole thing. We don't call it Quintanera here, but I guess the, the principle is the same. I made her like a video um, of people singing. So it was kind of like a music video. Um, so I would say that that is the first like real thing that I made. <laughs> Um, so I knew my way around. I always had like a camera. My parents would give things like film related things to me for my birthday, um, even before they knew that that was going to be my profession. So I was always very enticed by this world, but only discovered that there was a place for me in it when I went to USC. And I totally get and respect. I mean, it completely comes together that you like writing stuff that challenges yourself, because I got to admit it's not the reason I love uh, Pathé Mathos, but the fact that the writer-director, like, I always just watch the films and I don't read any of the info. I just take whatever's on the, like, I just figure the filmmaker wants me to see what's on the screen. They don't may want me reading about it first. But then, you know, I finish a film like yours and I see, okay, she wrote and directed this thing, co-produced it with some people, and she's the lead performer and she beats the crap out of herself. <laughs> and and uh, out of her character, I should say. And I mean, I just have to applaud it a little extra because Lord knows a lot of times when actors um, produce material for themselves, their goal is almost like, let me show myself in the best light. Like, let me let me glamorize myself and let me do this and let me like, you know, and and you literally take this character you play <laughs> and. uh you know, you thrash her around and and <laughs> and uh, show her worst day ever. I imagine if it's yeah. a day, if it's a yeah, it, like, it's a course of one day. Yeah, and you're right. Like it's my mom has um, jokes about this all the time that her dreams that I'm in like a rom com or something that I play like a lighthearted character who doesn't die or who doesn't get beat up or who doesn't drown doesn't die isn't bleeding <laughs> from her face throughout the film and yeah it, and, she's uh, very like she keeps she's waiting for that day um, but I, I know what you mean and I feel like there is um, when you do especially when you direct yourself, I think that I am like just waiting for the um, accusations of narcissism to come. And to some extent, like I understand, like I totally understand why um, people would assume that I'm a narcissist for putting myself in my own movies. But I am really, I, I really believe in why, what, I'm, what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. I know that the reason, I only play characters that I write and I'm like, it, when I'm directing, that I'm right, that I write and I'm like, oh, I really don't think I can do this. Like, that's going to take me su such a journey. I'm going to learn so much trying to play this character. And every time I do it, I feel like it's a stronger failure. You know, I see things that I want to improve, but I'm like, okay, I think this was stronger than the last time. I'm, I'm learning how to, uh, like, how to conquer these challenges that I'm setting for myself. Um, and so far, what has what attracts me a lot is just I, the idea of female perseverance and survival. That's something that I've seen in different ways, at all in all of these places that I've been. And I was raised mostly by female, uh, by female role models, and um, yeah, those were the people that I saw the most and from whom I learned the most as well. So I'm really interested in that. So far, it hasn't made sense to me um, to to do something that is a little lighter. 
Um, although I, I do think this day will come and I'm not going to judge myself if I look good in a movie. That's not a point. <laughs> but, but so far, these topics are more interesting to me and really make me step out of my comfort zone. If I start the movie thinking that I have it all and that, you know, oh, this is going to be a walk in the park, a piece of cake, then there's something wrong. I should not be the one playing that character. And I kind of feel like that should be how all actors should feel in any role. You know, a role shouldn't be something that is like a mathematical sort of, oh, okay, I do this and then it's done. No, it should like tease you and challenge you and make you like, make you feel vulnerable. And that's how I want to feel as an actor and also master, you know, as an actor. Yeah. And I can't, I, I mean, I agree with you a thousand percent and I can't help, but also look at a bigger context of filmmaking and the entertainment industry and the fact, I mean, I can't, I can't ignore the fact that the the role of the female gender in film for the longest time was to sit there and look pretty. And we've had enough of that. So, I mean, how many films are there where the a lead male character gets the crap beat out of him? Like a ton. And everyone respects those actors. So the fact that someone would turn to you and, and expect you to pretty it up or something like, like no one says that, you know, to Kevin Spacey or bad, bad example, but you know what I mean? Yeah, like, bad example, but I, I feel like I know what you mean. In my, in my mother's case, she just like hates seeing me. Like I, I explained to her that it's a movie and that everything was safely done and I did not get hurt, but she, she believes that the movies are very real. So I guess it's a compliment to my filmmaking that she always, you know, actually thinks that I am getting beat up or, you know, drowning or dying. Um, but I, but I see what you mean. And I think that, you know, anybody in my like anybody from the northeast or latin america or any place that is less represented in films um just by virtue of us making movies we do have um i don't know it is like in a minor sense kind of um a little groundbreaking that that we do these things given how hard people push against um so and yeah, there's so many more groundbreaking like Latin American um, people making films that inspire me to kind of continue to do my thing and not have to like respond to any sort of like traditionalism or prudism that would come from the status quo. Yeah, and I got to admit, part of me hates myself for bringing up the greater context because I can't wait till it's we don't have to talk about it anymore. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. But but for now, I can't help but say bravo, bravo in every way, because besides being a it's just absolutely great film. And then in the context of of how the film medium handles women like you're just doing it right. So golf clap, bravo. <laughs> really? But but I love that. Also, it sounds like that's not your concern when you're writing something you're writing it just to tell the best story and to challenge yourself yeah it definitely started i mean the the very like beginning of it was just like from my perspective of like how can i be a better actor and then i i, I got into film school and i started learning about story and narrative and script writing which is something all of these things are like an ongoing you know school cool like you you learn more about it the more you make it the more you watch good movies the more you go to film festivals and talk to other artists so it definitely started with just me wanting to to like create circumstances and opportunities that I that would make me grow as an actor um 
and then the more that I learned about the the structure of story and the le- lack of structure of story, like Pathé Matos, you know, that, that was all about breaking with structure. Um, the more I learned about all the different parts of filmmaking, because that's the thing, you go to film school and even though I act and direct and write the most, in film school, you do everything. Like I, I've done a ton of art, like of production design and art directing, which is something that I think really shows in, or at least I, it has made me place an importance that's really, really big in those, um, in those parts of my movies. Like I never, like it's one of the first meetings that I have. It's with art directing. I, I DP'd as well, which is definitely a weakness of mine, but it has helped me speak the language of cinematographers and, and help and kind of like understand what, how we can communicate better to achieve what we want to achieve. So in this process of speaking, learning all these different languages and, and, and experimenting behind the camera, I think it just makes you understand that it's more about your own character. And I like to believe that the movies that I make um, become less about just me challenging myself. It's always, uh, that's always included, but it, now there's also a sense of a greater story. Like, what do I want to say to the world with this movie? Like, how can I use what I have or learn different techniques to achieve this one thing that I'm trying to convey, you know? Yeah. And same way you seem to be a person who wants to always challenge yourself as an actor, you also challenge yourself as a storyteller, right? Because this is, this was, I mean, I assume it occurred to you that, wow, this was a pretty ambitious story to tell. That I guess, I mean, to be honest, I don't think it really like the, the ambitious part of it didn't really occur to me with, with other stories that I tell, it often does because I, I'm there, they all start from a place of a hundred percent like fiction, um, and this is the one thing that I've done that although all stories are are based on things that I've felt and imagined, you know, like some sometimes things that I've witnessed, um, you know, like that's how my writing begins. It's hardly ever just like a fantasy. You know, it's it's based on everything is based on, you know, something intimate and vulnerable that I've experienced. But Pathé Matos is the only short film that I've made that is um, directly based on an experience that I had. Like it's a hunt like. It's not biographical because it's not factual, but when I was making a movie in 2020, I had just returned from living in Australia and I was at USC during the summer and I was making a movie with that, that was being directed by Evan Siegel, who is the editor and um, associate producer of Pathé Matos. Um, Evan was directing that movie and that I had written and we were producing it together. It was just something we were doing for the summer and I got hit by a car. And my leg was broken, like, like shattered in, in a bunch of different parts. And I was taking back home to Brazil, operated on a couple of times and told that there was no way of telling if I was going to be able to walk without limping ever again. And I was like, th- this was 2018. I was 20 at the time. Um, so it was this really like I spent months like on a wheelchair and then a walker and then crutches and then. Um, doing physical therapy every day, really um, focused on on getting back my life and not being like impaired for the rest of my life because of this. So it was a time where I experienced a lot of PTSD, which is something that it was new to me. And yeah, like all these new feelings came um, and I didn't know how to best uh, organize them in my head. I, I, my solution was actually to go and make a film. So I was, I was acting a couple of films while my leg was still broken on a cast <laughs> um, just cause I had to. 
Um, and then eventually I, and then this happened over the summer. And then the next year when I was already back, I, I took a semester off school to learn how to walk again. But when I was back, um, I was, I didn't want to write Pathe Matos I, because I didn't want to exploit my own pain and torture myself like that, or to like go around the world being like, Hey, come watch my trauma movie. Like I hated that idea so much. I thought it was so like exploitatory. Like it was just not something I wanted to do. And then came one night where it just like came out like, like a vomit. I just sat down for a night and then I wrote it. And the next thing I knew I was making it because it just had to be done. That chapter had to be closed that way. And the story is not exactly how it happens in the movie. There's lots of like creative liberties. Um, first, first, I guess to like protect myself, but then mostly, um, it gets, it got to a point where I thought recording it was going to be really difficult, but it wasn't, you know, it, it wasn't, it didn't remind me like shooting the scenes didn't remind me of my own accident or anything. It was so different. And so, uh, there was such an element to, um, I guess fantasy to Pathematos when we shot it, that it just made me be like inhabit a diff- different person in a different world and always driven by, you know, I want people to get close to the trauma experience without having had trauma or feeling like, you know, they, they can't understand it because they haven't suffered from it. Like how close can I get someone to understand what this is without having, you know, to have a traumatic experience. And that's what I wanted. That's what I wanted to experiment with, like how close I can get to people despite having a screen between us. But yeah, but that's why like the, the situation of Pathematos was a little different because I haven't written anything else that is so, that that dialogues so closely with like a major event of my life. Yeah. But it sounds like what you just did something wonderful, which is you took that inspiration, you took that trauma I mean, you tell a very different story, I think, than what you go through, right? Because, because what yeah. I, I, and by the way, I was in a bad car accident once. And I totally understand what you mean about trauma and like triggers and things, right? Like, I would find myself like in someone else's car. And if someone like kind of like jerked towards our car, I would like shout because, because like you, you, it stays with you when you, when you have a long recovery. So, yeah. and, and instead in Pafe Mathos, you, you uh, tell quite a different story really i mean and and the accident is different so yeah you really just you just use it as inspiration yeah it wasn't exploitative or anything that's for sure yeah and i i hardly ever actually mention that i think when we go to festivals when people ask about like how the story came about like i i have no problem in sharing that this happened to me but i definitely make an effort to not try to have this be like a selling tool for the movie you know, like not to be, um, yeah, not that having a movie that like immediately dialogues with your personal like pains uh, is a bad thing, but that's just not how I wanted Pathematos to exist in the world. Like the whole idea behind it is that even though no trauma looks the same, um, I wanted, I wanted people to understand that the, the, the complexity of this of like living an ordinary life while being traumatized something that looks so silly and simple to you to someone else may be a great challenge because of what they've been through you know like you don't know other people's stories I don't know other people's stories and I my hope was that Pathe Matos was gonna allow people to be more understanding of people that we know and are living with pain and trauma yeah so do you want to talk about I mean you tell me how much you want to share obviously I'm we're urging people to watch it yeah, but uh, like in, the, in the process of writing it, uh, 
like when did you the creative because it's an, an amazingly creative film and and the the way the narrative is is broken into chunks and settings and the way there's transitions and uh and honestly like when you it might be my favorite breaking of the fourth wall in forever because <laughs> because you know i think maybe it's because of ferris bueller i don't know but normally people just turn to the camera and they talk right and your character just every once in a while, not much, it's so subtle, but you just, by the way, talk about great acting, but like when you give that look right into the camera, it's like, damn. <laughs> Thank you, Jeff. Dude, no, I appreciate that. And it's funny, especially with the fourth wall breaks, because, well, first, first thing that you mentioned about like the structure being like all um, jumpy and nonlinear, that was something that I knew from the start that I wanted um, just because it's really simple. Um, my experience with trauma was that it was not linear and it was not pretty and it wasn't something that I could Hollywood people into understanding this. Like I couldn't just continuity editing people into like I wanted people to have an experience. And the truth is, and I think this is true for all of my movies. If I care a lot less about you understanding every single plot point than you having an actual experience. If you live, leave the movie theater feeling something, then I feel like I've, I've done something with my movies. But if you don't feel anything but understand all the plot points, then I feel like I failed you as a creator, you know? So it's okay if you're confused by the movie. It's okay if you are not sure of things. At least I think it's okay. Maybe maybe this sounds like I'm, I'm justifying myself, but I truly wanted an experience, not um, like, an, like a lesson or something. So it was important to me that you as the audience would be as much in it, immersed in this experience as possible. And there's so many um, qualities and, and techniques that come from experimental filmmaking, um, avant-garde filmmaking, as people would say, and even genre filmmaking that we use in Pathé Matos to help you understand the discomfort and to feel a little weird out and to feel maybe like some moments are too loud or too much, because that's the nature, I think, of trauma. I haven't, although this, this um, my hope is not that people, everyone that has that trauma will look at the movie and be like, wow, this is exactly my experience. That will never happen. Um, everyone's experience is different. What can happen and has happened is just people coming up to me and being like, hey, this is not how I felt, but it really like dialogues with how, you know, things happen for me. I can see myself in this movie, even if it's not the, the specific way that I had my trauma happen to me. So, um, so that was really important. Like the, the whole making, making the movie, uh, like a crazy structure, let's say. Well, and I'll and add to, to, I'll add to that. Cause I love what you said about, about audiences and that you don't want everything so clearly delineated to them that you telling them exactly what to feel is I'll say, you're also, you're trusting your audience. You're saying, I trust you to bring what you're going to bring and get something out of this because yeah, if, if you, I mean, I think that's one of the things we hate most about uh, big Hollywood filmmaking is that they just pander and they, they make everything. They'd never trust their audience. Right. So they're like, let us tell you exactly how to feel right now with this music and with this voiceover and this, and it's like, maybe you could trust the audience to figure some shit out for themselves. <laughs> Right. And you said something that I think it's super important. I think that we have to look at movies as a two way street. You know, you can't have a movie without an audience. And 
I mean, I guess you can, but it would be very sad and lonely. And what we try to do with Pate Matos is a conversation, not like an imposition. So however you come with whatever background and, and you know, feeling you come to the movie, that will play a part in your experience of the movie. That happens to anything in life, you know, like your, your context, your given circumstances, as actors would say, <laughs> will affect the way that you relate to the world. And with Pathe Matos, it wasn't different. You know, um, we showed an experience that you could get, get, we gave you a chance to like get immersed in this experience through the filmmaking techniques that we used. Um, and, and then you kind of do the rest. Like you get in as deep as you'd like and feel as much as you're available to. And I think that's an important thing. Um, that's why I was, I, I was, I wanted to make this movie about you know, the experience of trauma because I feel like I had only seen movies that was, that were about veterans coming back from war. And I had to do research to find movies that were about real people experiencing non-war related or non-like violence like that related trauma. So there's this assumption that you have to be heroic or you have to be in this really extraordinary circumstance to feel trauma, which is something that we wanted to kind of break in the movie because anyone anywhere for any reason can can have trauma, you know, and we make a point to say that in the movie that she has undiagnosed PTSD because this is not supposed to be like a a movie like a like we didn't consult um health professionals for this movie this was a, a, like a creative interpretation of a personal feeling that i've had and some people in the crew helped as well with their own experiences to make it more visual and, and help people um dialogue with this more and the fourth wall break is, is super interesting because um i love one of my favorite if not my favorite tv show is fleabag and after the second season came out, that was when I was writing Pate Matos. So I figured, well, like, what if we incorporate this? And the way we did it, I in the original, when we shot Pate Matos, I would actually look at the camera and say those lines. And in my mind, it looked, it was like, oh, this is really good. Sure, it's a little, you know, plagiarizing, plea bag a little, but you know, whatever. I'm a student. I, I'm learning. I'll do it. So we shot it and I thought that it worked really well on the page. And when I saw the assembly cut, I had a panic attack. I was like, I remember going to um, the philosophy building at USC and just thinking, well, my career is over. <laughs> I have, there's no way I can, I can do this. This is so bad. <laughs> but Scorsese has this thing about, uh, he says that if you don't get physically ill after watching the first cut of your film, something is wrong. And I felt that so strongly. I was up all night. And then I, I got up the next day. And I had solutions. I knew exactly what we needed to fix. And this was the number one thing. So that's when I spoke to Evan and I was like, okay, let's freeze the camera and hear her, but let's not have the, let's not play the dialogue. Um, like as she speaks, we, we need to find a way to like keep the, to keep the audience connected and, and during those moments and let them know that this is something happening inside her mind, almost as if her mind is glitching. That's the idea that she has. She's like a, a scratch. She's a, it's a CG with a scratch on, you know, and, and it glitches. And from, and so we knew from the first second cut, I guess, because the first one was when I was actually speaking to them. And if, oh my God, it was so bad. Um, and then, but we knew from that moment on, I thought this was going to ruin the movie, but that, that actually, but this decision, I think really made all of our other decisions kind of tied together. It really added this, um, I don't this uh, characteristic to the movie, like this um, unusual um, take 
to the movie. Um, it, it added cohesion in this craziness that we were doing, essentially. So Evan and I went through a series of glitch effects. Poor Evan would try everything. And I think we, we may have gone through like five or six different styles of glitching and actual effects that you would just drop to the timeline. And then essentially Evan made this one up. Like he just like froze, I think like, like one, like a couple of frames. And then he would like, let, like let a couple of frames play normally. And anyways, he did that. And the moment I saw it, I was like, okay, this, this is what we're looking for. This is it. So it's technically an effect never seen before in films because Evan came up with it. Um, but yeah, that was the, that was the reasoning behind it. So it was, um, it was it definitely had a lot of meaning behind the decision but it came from just a, something that we did and it didn't work so just being resourceful and creative out of a flaw that didn't work out i have to say yeah uh kudos to to you and evan on that because it really is your glitch effect i mean you can see when you see it you know it's just uh it's done in editing and it's not like a special effect or a plugin or anything. And and you see it just shifting between two frames in a jitter. Like you said, I love that you're calling it a glitch. I always thought of it as a jitter, but yeah, it's a glitch. And uh, you know, it's just, that's the kind of creativity. Like you said, you created something brand new for this, which is funny because <laughs> it's such I'll, a good I'll effect. I hope you like write a feature someday and use it. Cause like, as long as you I guys did try using like a different, uh, my, my, uh, my other movie solemn that I, I mentioned it to you. Um, uh, just played in Brazil and I got to see it a couple of days ago in the movie theater. And there is a little glitch effect, but on purpose, it's a much, it's a super different glitch. Cause I know, I know we repeat ourselves all the time as filmmakers, but I didn't want, you know, I just, I use a, a different glitch. I think that Pathe Matos glitch will remain there until maybe who knows, I, I shoot a feature in the future that, that allows for some exchange of glitching. You know, someday someone else is just going to come up with it. So, but anyway, and I was going to, I was going to add that it reminds me like creative people when they come up with creative solutions, like uh, it almost, it's not the same thing, but it reminds me, you know, that film election that Alexander Payne made with, uh, oh my God, I had her name and then I just lost it. Um, uh, but, but like he would do freeze frames but like the least attractive freeze frame ever, like you'd get the actor like with their like mouth open and one eye closed and just hold it there and then do voiceover. No, I haven't seen that. Well, I should check it out. Oh my God. It's, it's a uh, shame on me. It's, it's the one where Matthew Broderick is the principal and ah, uh, Oh, it sucks. It I've sucks. I've written it down. So I'll, I'll check it out. Okay. Like we did look at, um, I mean, you try to do research when, you know, you're stuck with a problem. But the funny thing is that, you know, you never really find what you're looking for. And then you do something and then someone comes up, someone's like, oh, you know, someone already did what you did. And so you invented the world for a couple of seconds and then you realize that, you know, you didn't do it. You, you know, you, you got to a solution, but... <laughs> But all kudos, all brownie points to Evan, who really worked for this. Um, yeah, without Evan's crazy, like crazy brain, we could not have gotten Pathé Matos to work. A normal person could not have edited Pathé Matos. <laughs> Very cool. And and plus, uh, and also talk about discipline. I mean, as far as as far as filmmaking goes, you don't overuse it either. Like you use it a couple times, but you don't. Turn, you didn't. You know, let's just say a less uh, refined or skilled filmmaker might've said, Oh, I like that. Do it all the time. And instead, like, you know, you just use it sparingly, like here and there where, where, where you need to communicate, uh, 
you know, when trauma is hitting her, basically. Yeah. Yeah, it's I think it was always something that we would talk about how this movie had a lot to it. Like there's so much symbolism and so much I mean everything has a reason to be there. We were really careful with with um what was in the frame and what wasn't and I've heard from people that you know when they watch it again and they they pick up on different things on, on details on like something like a small example of that is um it's Christmas time and and you like we decorated the gas station with like Christmas uh decorations and and we play Christmas music and that is a song that transforms into one of the flashbacks and I mean nobody really notices that but it was really important to me because there's this idea that on Christmas everything is like warm and fuzzy and the fact that this is happening to her while Christmas is going on is this tiny, tiny thing that I was using in my actor prep that I wanted to bring in to the store. Um, so we knew that there was so much. And if someone picked up on everything, it would be really overwhelming. It's already overwhelming with a number of flashbacks that we have in one short film and one 15 minute short film. So with the glitching, because it's such an obvious like, you know, here's on your face like this is a super obvious uh um tool it it felt right to kind of use it less um i actually felt like we were maybe a little you know overusing it when i mean when it came out i had no idea like what to expect so i had the impression that it what we were overusing and then i learned to understand that whatever we overuse helps build the idea that this is strange and unusual and yeah, it may feel like too much but that's kind of the nature of the issue we were trying to convey you know trauma as an audience member, I don't think it was too much. And am I wrong or are most of the glitches also coinciding with those looks that break the fourth wall? Yeah, we would we would do um, the way we did is that we had, I think, two glitches that were independent or no, not independent that that would ignite a small flashback because they grow. Right. So first you have like a really small one and then you have a, a slightly bigger one. And then the image starts to connect with um, the glitching. So like she looks at, down at her hands and then we glitch to the past when her hands are all bloody. And um, when, you know, she like right after the crash. So we start with um, like a light association. Um, we we have like words as well. When when a character says everything will be fine, the fine is already a word in the sentence of someone else, but already glitched into the, the traumatic event. So we do a lot of these associations. So it was important that the glitch wouldn't, wouldn't just like happen, that it would that the glitch would always indicate something bigger that we showed little by little. So every time it glitched, you knew something was going to happen, um, but you didn't know what because you weren't fed that much information to be aware of the plot. For sure, and I'll add more, 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 more applause for for you and the film is that is that by doing it, it just also I don't know I think it just expands the viewing viewing experience in it. And it kind of, this was not your intention, I know, but it also tells the viewer, I think, that, hey, this is a film that, this film that's going to break some rules. And this is a film that's going to, going to take you somewhere original, like, like all those early experiences of watching the film, like, it's a ride, like, (laughs) like, I love that you submitted as Art House Experimental, but like, it's almost thriller too. Like it's, I, to be honest, Jeff, like I always consider this movie a thriller and it's, I actually don't think it's experimental at all, but I have learned that American 
film festivals will often classify it as experimental. As a matter of fact, we have won a best experimental award at a festival. And what one of my mentors, um, her name is Clementine. She used to work for USC. I mean, I consider her a mentor. I don't know if she would consider herself, would consider me a mentee, but I definitely learn a lot and I'm hugely inspired by her. Um, but she told me, and, and she has worked for film festivals, she's really knowledgeable, and she she gave me a tip that was, if you submit to festivals that have the experimental category, um, if if you submit to festivals that are mostly narrative but have a category for, you know, experimental filmmaking, um, submit to the experimental category, but don't submit as an experimental movie to an experimental film festival. And that, I think said everything that I needed to know in outside of the U S this movie has never been considered experimental. Um, but inside it, it happens sometimes. So this is just like, sort of like one of those, um, out of like, not really related to the film more to the film market because the movie is so weird and non-linear. Um, some people associate it to experimental when the rule, I guess, for being experimental is if there's not like um, a narrative that you can follow. And in this case, even though there's not a linearity, there's definitely a character and sort of like she wants something and they're opposing forces. So it, I don't think it's an experimental film, but <laughs> that's just kind of how you'd go. You do as a filmmaker. Well, it's funny. Uh, I uh, obviously I'll take the bait and talk about categories at film festivals as someone who, who who's a festival runner of two is that uh, we debated, man. We, I really wanted to add this category because every once in a while we get something really. And so, I, I mean, I love, so we debated whether to call it avant-garde. We debated whether to call it art house. We debated on, so we went with art house slash experimental because even if, right, because yeah, I guess some people are really strong about what experimental means and like, you know, I don't know. Sometimes it means an Andrew yeah. Warhol film that's eight hours of watching the sun go down on the side of a building, but you know, with no story. But it definitely is art house, right? Like the idea of, yeah, of an yeah. art house, like this isn't, I don't know what the, you know, I'm obviously I'm a film snob. I mean, you can't <laughs> be part of film festivals without like, you know, I, I mean, I have my guilty pleasures, but. But art house cinema, where it's like, okay, this is made for people who love cinema and people who want to get more out of it. And nope, I got no problem with the people who like their favorite thing in the world is the sitcom with a stand up comedian and a wife who's smarter than him. Like, fine, that's great. But some of us want to watch stuff that we've never seen before. Yeah. I, I agree with you there. I think that, um, I mean, I am no, like, I am I am a bit of a film snob, sure. I mean, I studied uh, film studies at USC, surrounded by a, a, a lot of other snobs. So I guess you do become a little snobbish with a film degree, comes with it. <laughs> but at the end of the day, I'm no authority on what is and what isn't experimental. I, I, I definitely like to get creative and try new things in my movies, but I don't think that I have the guts and... Um, bravery of like a Carolee Schneeman or like an actual experimental filmmaker, like a Maya Darren. Um, those, these are people that inspire me, but I can't say that my movies are, you know, dialogue with the style that they use or don't use or, you know, um, so I don't think that Pathé Matos is experimental, but it's only out of um, respect for actual experimental filmmaking that deserves a place in the world and often doesn't get that place because non-experimental films kind of um, take over because they're a little weird, you know? 
So I, I, I wish Pathematos wouldn't be considered experimental for that reason. But if someone that knows more than I do thinks differently, that's, then I'd love to hear that because, you know, I'm always learning and yeah, I've made one experimental short before for school. And it's one of the, my, my favorite things. I, I've never sent it anywhere, but it's the movie that I actually go back to and watch the most um, that I've made, which I don't do that with my movies, but that one I like to watch because it's just like a sensorial sort of like lots of water movie. Um, I, might yeah. ask, I might ask you to send that one over, but uh, it's funny because listening to you talk, like... by the way, listening to you talk about this makes me wish man, maybe we should separate art house and experimental into their own categories and see who submits to what. Cause like, that would be a, a cool social experiment as well. Wouldn't it? Cause, cause like we used to yeah. have, it actually used to say, I think it was thriller slash horror. Cause like if someone's made a genuine thriller, like that's so hard to categorize too, right? Like, is it dramatic? Is it this, like, where do you submit that? If it's just like drama, comedy, you know, whatever sci-fi, like, like, but then combining thriller and horror was totally not fair. So it is. So, I mean, I have to say, I find this for someone that like leaves and breathes film like I do. I wish that I could have a, like a stronger sense of genre like that. Oftentimes I start movies with no clue and then I kind of find it along the way and I finish the movie and I realize that the movie is only that genre for me. Everyone else thinks it's something else. I just finished one that we shot in California that went to the um, TIFF filmmaker lab that was developed in the lab. And I always thought it as a family drama, um, definitely because I'm an actor and that's that's like the core dramatic question of that movie. And then we finished it. And now that we're sending it to festivals and, you know, planning our life, it's um, we're calling it a dystopian uh, a dystopian drama, I think. See, I, I forgot. But it makes sense because it, it plays with the idea of an apocalypse, but but it's not sci-fi, but it's technically still in the genre movie category. And I just think it's a drama. <laughs> so I definitely am I'm grateful for the help of people that have a more um, business mindset than I do because they're able to pick out, like to understand these things better. And it really helps the movie to be placed in the right category. So I'm grateful to to be with those people. It does. I mean, obviously, in a perfect world, we could just I actually think our first year or two, it was just short, short film, any genre like it was just. But the truth is, like when it comes to but then that doesn't encourage people who are who are making more challenging stuff to submit. Right. Because they're like, well, if it's just everything. And then I got to admit, like. Awards don't matter. But, you know, when the jury is just. I mean, when the when a jury is watching, you know, 30 shorts and there's some really creative, original genre breaking stuff. And then there's a tragic drama about just your classic. uh, I'll just be a jerk and say I'm a cancer survivor. So I'll just say a cancer drama. Everyone just votes for that damn cancer drama. And like (laughs) and, and as a cancer survivor, I'm like. Dude, that actually wasn't like that's what a non-cancer survivor would say about cancer. You know, like I can really tell the difference between a film from something. Anyway, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, like, no, I you've feel you got to like- have genres just so that you don't have Pathé Mathos competing with with something that's you know award bait. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, I'm glad that that Sherman Oaks and, and film festivals that are I'm glad for film festivals they're they're mindful of that, you know, because it's so important. I think um, you mentioned in the beginning that uh, features kind of get a afterlife after festivals and short films kind of die, and that's really a shame um, because all feature filmmakers were short filmmakers once. And if you think about it, there's so much like room for short films to be watched in people's lives. Like you can watch a short film on your bus to work. You can watch a short film like before you had to class. Like it, it you can find different lengths and different moods and different, the same way that you can Netflix a movie based on your mood, on your mood. You can do the same thing for short films and actually like spend less time and time is such an issue these days. So I, and I was told by, by someone lot smarter than me that I can't be a short filmmaker if I only watch feature films. And I take that so seriously now. Like I go to film festivals and I watch the short films too. I just don't, I don't just watch the features, even though they are like the fancy kind of like main course of the festival. And yeah, I think that there's room for short films and people uh, doing things like what you're doing with the Amazon um, Discovery Indie Film series kind of helps us see that, you know, it's worth doing this, that making short films, it doesn't have to be just... Um, because you don't have money to make features. There are so many stories that work better in the short format and should be valued as such, you know? I totally agree. I mean, not to jump on my soapbox, but I have quantitative proof that the public actually will respond to high quality. Like, I think a lot of people just figure, not nah, people either want a TV series or a feature film. And there's just this, uh, I don't know, there's this wall up for shorts. But when Discover Indie Film... The TV series, I think the first three seasons is when we were included with Prime. And we got up to 10,000 unique viewers a week. Like 10,000 people a week were just like watching high quality shorts that were like handpicked from the festival circuit. And, And then sadly, Amazon, I mean, they made a smart business decision, which was like, oh, instead of people watching your stuff for free and then we send you a dollar, I mean, honestly, like they started paying like 0.001 cent per hour or something, but, but they said, no, you should have to charge a dollar an episode and then we'll take half of that. And I get it. It's their servers. Like it makes more sense. But like if there was, and I think like uh, what Netflix is love, death and robots, that proves that like people will respond to short form content um, as long as it's good and creative. Yeah, and Love, Death, and Robots is so groundbreaking as well. Like, you know, we mix it so many different, it's genre hybrid, which I think is how, is the way filmmaking is heading anyways. Hybridity is the key to the future. Um, but even if you think about it, um, the, the animation that won the Oscar last year or two years ago, um, If Anything Happens, I Love You, is a Netflix short. Um, it's, it's so, you know, so many people watch that. I, I watch that. And, I think it shows that there is room. And I mean, like you're saying, 10,000 people in a week. And this is from one website that, you know, it's not nearly as popular as the Netflix, for instance. I don't think Amazon has. I mean, this is not an actual fact that I'm saying. I'm just speculating. But I I don't think that there are more Amazon Prime users than there are Netflix users. Um, Especially on on video, 100%. Like, yeah. And yeah. on the, I mean, Amazon Prime Video. Yeah, I mean, the Prime, I'm sure. Yeah, Prime. Yeah, page, yeah. Um, if people are ordering underwear, yeah, Amazon wins. But if if they're watching content, in fact, I know there's a lot of great films on Prime Video that I haven't watched because 
I get drawn to HBO Max and Netflix first. It's funny. Yeah, I'm I'm also an HBO stand here. That's I think what I use the most out of. Yeah, those. I think it has the best stuff, right? Yeah, I mean, because it's not a bunch of things. Um, it doesn't have as many things as Netflix, but I think it's more curated. I don't know. I'm trying to I'm trying to get um, movie or um, the Criterion channel, but that is so expensive. The Criterion collection. Yeah, so if anyone from the Criterion Collection is listening to this podcast, give us a discount. <laughs> give the, the indie filmmaker a discount, okay? It's really expensive. <laughs> That's true. That's funny. Uh, the, it's, it's that high TV thing I told you about. We actually use the same platform as Criterion. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty cool platform. All right, so I know I don't have Criterion Channel. But I feel like if I won the lottery and I could just stop working for the rest of my life and just watch movies, I would totally get it. They have such great, like, if you can't find a movie anywhere, it's probably in the Criterio channel. channel. That's how good it is, especially international films. And they have all the, all the bonus stuff, right? Like, because Criterion, I mean, I'm old, right? So like when Criterion first came out, I think it was like big old laser discs were like Criterion collection laser disc. And I know they do have have, like a DVD audio content like you could watch the film and then watch it with like a film studies professor discussing the film the whole way through and it was it was wonderful i, I didn't even know about all these add-ons see i don't have it so i don't know about all the privileges but who knows one day one day <laughs> you know it'd be fun uh someday i'll push you will you do an extra audio track on pathe mathos where you just you and the editor discuss things uh, as, as the film plays That'd be fun. That'd be so much fun. That'd be fun. Evan and I can just gossip about the the set and like all the crazy things that happen because so many insane things happened with Fate Mantas. I don't I don't know if I talked about this one thing where um we were supposed to shoot the 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 scene with my where my character like with the swings, you know, that kind of happens in this like limbo kind of uh foggy space in the movie it was supposed to be shot in a garden i really wanted that i and we struggled a lot but found one finally and we were supposed to shoot that at like 3 a.m and then suddenly all the sprinklers went on and in all of our equipment and everything that we had and we just thought that we were either gonna get electrocuted or just have to pay so much money because of damages and lost that day, like lost the, the rest of the day. And then we pushed the the scene to the next day, which was the last day we had to shoot. And everything was being shot in the warehouse. Like that's when we shot all the flashbacks in the car. And um, yeah, everything with the car was shot there. And then the like the, the scenes on like on the snorri cam where like my character is walking and then you see the camera kind of snorri camming um with her um and then we just decided to shoot it then and it was not what we had written planned or anything but we just made it work we we decided that it would work with the what we were trying to convey um and instead of trying to make a real space seem unreal which was what we were trying to do we just went to, to a space that was less um that was easier to be made um kind of subconscious uh like a easier to to have this more um subjective take on it and we shot it there and when people watch Pate Matos I often get that that's their favorite part the the stuff with the swings and that's so funny because that's like the one part that I didn't really write that you know the craziness of filmmaking wrote for me and we just adapted and like yeah I went to like a tree graveyard um 
the morning before we shot that and picked up a bunch of tree chunks to use in the car scene and not one of them ever made to to any of the cuts which is i was carrying this huge like tree trunk and yeah i mean it was it was just some crazy times i'm sure evan would remember even more craziness than i do because i was in it and yeah yeah you had a lot on your plate i'm sure but i'll add that what you did is perfect because you couldn't get exactly what was on the page but you got the spirit of what was on the page yeah and i really liked the way it turned out like i loved all the fog um it, which is something that we wouldn't be able to have controlled in like the open space like the external location we had we could see some fog but i don't think we'd be able to we actually only had one fog machine for that scene um if we were to shoot it outside and we used maybe four um when we shot it indoors like really large fog machines, not the tiny ones, like the, yeah. 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 So you really just filled the space. Yeah. We couldn't see each other or the camera. We'd had to like open the window after every take. Um, Is that those machines that burn vegetable oil? I don't know. To be honest, I was not in charge of the fog machines. There's definitely a type of oil. Um, and dare I say, we didn't really use a lot of oil um, because I remember that um, we turned the machine on for a little bit and then we would like just uh, woof. I don't know what's up for that. Um, and then we would do this over and over again a couple of times. But the machines were so powerful that I don't remember anyone having to like stop, uh, wait for and the oil to be like refilled or anything. So I don't, I, I don't actually think we bought any cause we borrowed one of the machines and the warehouse had others that just allowed us to use. So, yeah. Cause that's something that I, I became mindful of as well. Like how green can we make the set and how, you know, I try to get better at that. That is a, a challenge. Um, but I try to be mindful of stuff like that. Cause I come from a country that, um, I would like to say emphasizes things like that, say for the past four years when we had, you know, an idiot for president. Um, but yeah, we have like a huge national treasure and it's important to, you know, preserve all of those things. You have a national treasure and then the rest of the world turns to Brazil and says, uh, can you maintain that for us? Cause it's kind of helping the entire planet. <laughs> Yeah, and we used to do such a great job. Like Brazil had a really like strong rate of um, um, reforestation of the the Amazon up until like I think 2015 or something, and then massive massive fires happened as all the world was able to see. But our hope is with this new president, um, things a new old president because he was already you know the most successful Brazilian president we had, and he's back. So hopefully it's it's going to be good not just for culture overall, um, you know. To make movies and things but also for life as in the air we breathe <laughs> so yes the, there's optimism in the horizon for sure yeah uh, i'll share with the podcast listeners that i think we emailed we this this i think we rescheduled this a ton of times right and this chat and like when you when you emailed me i'm actually down in brazil for the election i was like oh my god that's like I mean, the United States so rarely pays attention to things outside the United States. And the fact that that election between Lula and Bolsonaro, like like the fact that we had international news, like told told you just how important this was. And I was like, John Oliver had a whole uh, 
program, like a whole show about this, about Bolsonaro. And I was shocked. Like I have seen like Brazil fall apart um, under this guy's government and how, and I was in the US for a lot of it. So I would see how other people just would not care. Like would, it would just not be important. And then when I saw John Oliver uh, talking about Bolsonaro, it was actually banned from Brazil HBO or something like they didn't screen it here. There was some shit like that. And of course, people edit subtitles and it's on YouTube um, because John Oliver is, you know, such an icon for, for I guess, like whistleblowing in that sense. Um, and uh, anyways, but that really showed me how the world was really paying attention to us. And I came here um, for the for the election and worked on a lot of campaign videos, not official campaign videos, but uh, everyone in, in films, independent film kind of mobilized. And I directed three campaign videos and everybody just shot, like let everybody use your equipment. And we just did everything for free. Nobody charged anything. We didn't charge anyone. And we would just shoot these things really fast and spread them on social media. We got like thousands of views because that's, that's an election. This was an election won on social media, right? So everybody was trying to fight for the democracy. And yeah, I'm, I think we're all very happy that we won't have another four years of Bolsonaro. Well, and you were facing, I mean, now we're discussing Brazil, but but you were facing the possibility, I mean, it was clearly not going to be a fair election, so you had to use social media to overcome Bolsonaro trying to use state power to make it an unfair election. So the yeah, fact that, the fact that you were able to overcome his cheating, oh my God. Yeah, kind of like that, that was like a big question, right? Like the he essentially was buying votes. Um, he was he was giving people more money on social programs than ever. Um, and yeah, he was legally, I guess, buying votes, but definitely amorally. So we really like I never I had never seen anything like that in the cult the culture in Brazil, like filmmaking was greatly affected by this government all money was cut there was, we used to have a ministry of culture that is now coming back but it was abolished just like um yeah there's a number of uh, like science the ministry of science was cut like all the all these things that we consider important but many in the right wing do not were just excluded from history books essentially and so it was really difficult to be a filmmaker in Brazil. And I mean, I was privileged that I was in the U.S. studying during this time because I could um, use equipment and resources from USC or from friends. I, I didn't rely on the Brazilian government. And now I'm going through my first experience of making a movie that's 100 percent Brazilian, not a co-production. Most of my movies have been co-productions with Brazil. But now I'm I'm going through the journey that all filmmakers here go through. Um, but yeah, but it was just very difficult. And now, yeah, it, it very inhumane. And that's only talking about film, right? I mean, gay people, black people, indigenous like people really uh, suffered even more than they have already suffered under Bolsonaro. So now we are hoping for better days here in Brazil. Yeah, it's a wonderful, wonderful story. And hopefully a sign of of good things to come globally, right? Because for a little while, I mean, I don't mean to get, obviously we're both on the same uh, left-ish or whatever. You know, I consider myself a moderate liberal, but but I'm pretty liberal. But but like the fact that 
oh man, the list, Hungary, Turkey, the United States, Brazil, there were so many democracies that had someone in charge who didn't give a fuck about democracy and, and cared way more about keeping their, their fascist, they, they would, they prefer fascism actually to democracy. Like, yeah. I mean, Jeff, like right now there are people who are still protesting the, the election, the result they of the election. They attacked the police station, right? They attacked, uh, but they just found the police just found like a number of guns. Um, like, um, Jesus, gun names. I, I can't forget. I can't remember them in Portuguese or English. Um, like, like, um, shock, machine guns, machine guns. That's what I mean. Like the kind of automatic kind of, um, yeah, we call yeah, them assault just weapons found, now, right? The, uh, oh, yeah, like whatever they are, like they just found a number of those here um, with the people that are protesting elections, like like um, officials are getting arrested. People in the government are sponsoring them. You see cops in Brazil um, abusing people of color and uh, people in the left wing as well. And then you see them having coffee with these people who are asking for a coup d'etat to happen, you know. <laughs> so that's kind of how Brazil goes. Um, there's still people protesting, but you know we still go out in the street and and we're able to kind of get democracy democracy back there were these huge acts on the streets with um lula lula came to my city to a bunch of capitals and you would see thousands of people in the streets and even though it's really hard to live in a country where so many people seem to just disavow um key elements of democracy that had has enabled people to go to school without having money and you know, just just graduate from college without having had any education before. Um, they just seem to ignore all those things and and put our society in danger. But there are still people that are fighting for the right things in Brazil. Well, I'll tie it back to your filmmaking. That it's so cool that you were able to use your your skill set and make videos and do put things on social media that that could get the views and and inspire people and hopefully make a difference. That's that's. That's, yeah. it's, it's excellent that you care so much and it's excellent that you were able to use all these skills you have and apply it to something you care about. Yeah. I mean, I think I've, I've had like a, uh, like a bit of awakening, um, in those regards. Cause I, I really like making movies like Pate Matos and Solemn and this next one, Bleed Don't Die. Um, they're all, Pate Matos and Solemn are a little weirder. Bleed Don't Die is a little more, um, conventional, I guess. But they're all um, challenges, technical challenges to me. They're they're inspired by films and filmmakers that have long inspired me. But my next project in Brazil, I, I may shoot one in the U.S. before that, but my next project in Brazil is very much based on all that we just talked about, on politics, essentially. I come from a city that that is... Um, home to many of our nation's best filmmakers. Um, but that's, that's also kind of built, uh, around this design, the segregationist design. Like we call it urbanism of segregation, where like really tall buildings put like rich people away from the actual city and the streets are designed for cars, not for people. It makes it really hard to be a person, an average person. Um, and when I say average, I mean, literally anyone that you picked out off the street, like it's hard to be a person in this city. And that really, um, drives, uh, people away. Um, it doesn't promote intercultural moments within our own city. 
Um, so my next short film in Brazil called Seashore actually talks a lot about this. So I, I'm excited to, to be making more socially um, realistic films, I guess, because although Lee John Dai, Pate Matos and Solemn all speak about things, feelings that are valid and intimate, they all use more um, um, magical realism or, or like like fictitious tools than this next one. This next one does have a lot of surrealism, but it's a it's a social drama as well, a very Brazilian social drama. So I'm excited to to kind of experiment in this new phase of my career. That sounds excellent. Well, we've we've gone on for a bit. I I don't want to go forever. I mean, I I could probably <laughs> chat with you for another hour. I swear to God. I'm 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 only I'm only saying this because you know we both probably have lives and and such. But uh, is there anything you want to add to the end? It's great to hear, by the way, that since since you were at the festival last year, you're still creating stuff, and and you know, in spite of traveling and in spite of devoting yourself to the election, you still have like projects going and stuff. That's great to hear. Yeah, we I try to to keep going, and yeah, working on a couple of projects right now. Uh, yeah, just, I, um, I guess what the things that I could add are, well, the, the other project I'm working on is I just outlined and kind of am finishing a draft of my first feature film, um, which is to be shot in Brazil in the distant future, but, but it's exciting. I think every filmmaker, every first time filmmaker, um, I think we we kind of like torture ourselves a lot over this first film idea, right? Like it has to be right. It has to represent everything that I can offer and all the ideas in my mind. And then I just try to take like a seat back and like not pressure myself as much to create like this ridiculously complicated story and came up with something that I think is quite simple. Um, I don't know if other people will share this opinion, but I, I think it's quite simple. Either way, it's something to work on and I'm excited. But if anyone listening to this wants to get to know my work or get in touch or collaborate in things, um, I have a website and Instagram as well, I guess. So Instagram is kind of people how, how people connect this, these days. So, um, yeah, I'm sure it's going to be like written, but my website is my name, vitoriavasconcelos.com. And my Instagram is at Vasconcelos, V-I-C. So that's my last name and then V-I-C. Also, if you write Vitoria Vasconcelos, I'm sure you'll find it. There are there, there can't be that many Vitoria Vasconcelos in the world, that's I think. True. It's very cool. And I'll add, uh, I always, uh, you know, uh, podcasts have show notes on most apps that people listen to them on. So so I have a clip clickable link for uh, Vitoria Vasconcelos on uh so there'll be a clickable, clickable link for both your website and Instagram. Might as oh, well. Awesome. That's easier than people having to memorize my last name. So yeah. that's true. Uh, and uh, although I see, uh, I could see whatever. I was about to be silly and say like, you know, I could see like the, the name Vascon and then cellos like the instrument. But anyway. Yeah. I mean, sure. Like, yeah, whatever, whatever helps. <laughs> You have a row of cellos be your 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 symbol for your. I I think that that would be misleading, get based on how untalented I am in the musical realm. I well, play guitar very very poorly. I don't want people knowing this. <laughs> understood, understood. Well, there's all kinds of arts, though. True. All right, well, I, I'm a of music. Yeah, 
Yeah, I don't know a filmmaker who doesn't secretly want to be a musician, right? Well, I, I guess I, I feel like there's people who have actual like something to give to music and talent. I think I have something to say when it comes to film and performance, but when it comes to music, I'll let the people who actually have something to say and and the means through which you know say it to take over, and I'll just take a seat and listen. Yeah, it is. I mean, I just say that because it's just hard not to wish that, you know, and I guess I'm actually just projecting there because as a kid, I took like a year or two of piano and then like a year of guitar and I was loving it and I was pretty talented. And then something else happened, like when I got to middle school and I just dropped music. And oh, my God, if I could sit down at a piano and play something I wanted to play today, uh, that I wish young me had given old me the opportunity, you know? Jeff, it sounds like in the opening or closing night of next year's Sherman Oaks, we should have a concert. Like not we as in you and I, but you should organize a concert where you are the one act and then all your dreams will come true. I don't see how that, you know, that should happen. Well, I appreciate you. But uh, one, I'm I'm very happy that that these film festivals are about the films and the filmmakers and I honestly, I've I've even heard of festivals where like the people running the festival like will show like a short they made that really sucks or or they'll <laughs> do or they'll do a little performance. And it's like, nah, I'm here to celebrate the new generation, you know? Well, you see, we talked about this earlier. You're too nice. You're being too nice. You should well, have a special you don't have to be in competition. Just do I think there's a name for that. It's like encore or something. Um, when it's like an, uh, a screening that's not a part of the actual, fa- like you can't say that it's a festival selection, but it's like an homage almost sort of, or I don't know, just something out of it. Just a way to have fun and realize your dream of being a rock star. <laughs> well, look, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. I don't okay. think I'll ever do it. start a secret petition. You will know until it happens. Uh, that's true. That's true. Who knows what will happen? I thought you were going to say, heck, if, if anything I do uh, ever ever allows me the free time, I would take piano lessons again or I take guitar lessons again because why not? I would probably be able to yeah. pick it up. I don't know. But uh, I was also a big lover of the bass. All right. Well, you named your <laughs> website and social media. Those will be clickable. I'll just ramble off the stuff at the end of the podcast so that we can, uh, we will actually stop recording. And then for everyone listening, then we'll start recording again because there'll be a podcast after this one released a couple days later that will be Vittoria answering the Discovery Indie Film Four questions, which are favorite films, an underrated film, an overrated film, and a lesser known film that people should seek out. So that's always, always a fun movie discussion. I'm just wrapping this up so I guess we can get to that. So I mentioned that Victoria's film, Pate Mathos, is in the Discover Indie Film TV series. So go to Prime Video uh, on a nice big TV, open that app, and just type in Discover Indie Film. It auto-completes pretty early because thankfully no one else is really using this title. I'll, I'll be really bummed when there's a Discover something else. But anyway, uh, watch season seven. It is, I think, $7.99 U.S. for the season. I don't know. Yeah, I know they, they... And it's only in the U.S. and U.K., by the way. I wish it was elsewhere. But I think people in other countries are pretty savvy about VPNs, too. So. <laughs> yeah. I, I but, know I am. <laughs> yeah, you have to be, right? <laughs> but uh, 
and and please just get up season seven and in episode two you'll see uh victoria's film with actually it's it's an episode it's a 30 minute episode or so with with three wonderful films it's got one called how to end a conversation and then there's Pathy Mathos in the center and then a, a lovely film called helper afterwards so enjoy that if you want to learn more about the podcast or the tv series it gave birth to you can just go to discoverindiefilm.com and on social media it's at dif wins and we talked about sherman oaks film festival many times we hold that sucker every November. You can learn more if you go to ShermanOaksFF.com and it's at ShermanOaksFF on social media. And it has a sister festival every uh, June. And uh, we didn't bring it up, but we talked about it before we started recording. But Victoria was on the Filmmakers Board giving out the Filmmakers Award. I love when filmmakers come back and join that jury because I think it's so meaningful that there's awards given by a jury of one's peers. Yeah, I think so. It's like the SEG Awards when you're an actor, you know, getting an award that's being given to you by your own community certainly must feel special. I think so. I think it means a lot. So so our June festival is called Film Invasion Los Angeles, and you can look it up at filminvasionla.com, and it's at filminvasionla on social media. And I'll add one last thing, which is uh, if you got a smart TV and you want to check out a cool app, uh, you can search for Hi TV, HITV, or on Apple, it's HI-TV. And if you want to learn more about this thing I'm saying, you just go to watchhitv.com. That's a, uh, another thing I'm involved in because I'm glutton for punishment, apparently. <laughs> but uh, Victoria, thank you so much. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and thank you everyone for listening. <laughs>